Welcome to Bumper Sticker Faith. My name is Sam Key, and this is episode 106. Uh, it's a special episode because it's a Christmas episode, and today, uh, it, and it may be, this may be the grand finale of the Bumper Sticker Faith season of the year, uh, <laughs> meditating on uh, Christmas. And so in order to do this, I have a special guest, a recurring guest that we've had on the show before, and that's Dr. Tom Price. Dr. Price, welcome again. Great, great to be here. How are things out there? They they are pretty good. It's a extremely busy season. I'm wrapping up my teaching term, and I have probably 120 papers to read through this week. Oh, we really <laughs> appreciate you coming on the show. Then, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm always I'm always glad to to carve out some time. I really think this stuff is important. Yeah, it is. I'd like to talk about the incarnation today, which is appropriate, obviously, because of Christmas. Well, maybe not for some people. <laughs> uh, they may uh, not uh, know. Some people may not know about the incarnation. So uh, let's start there. Uh, what What is the incarnation? What's its connection to uh, Christmas? And what's it, its connection to the Christian faith as well? Okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah, starting off. That's a that's the kind of essay you get on your your uh, systematic <laughs> theology test from from those uh, clever professors. Yeah. Um, let's <laughs> let's let's see if I can break that down. Um, well, I think one way of putting it is the incarnation is really what the Christian faith is all about, um, and mm -hmm. therefore, you know, in a derivative way, should be what Christmas is all about. The incarnation is what changes things. It is, if you're looking for a distinguishing mark of Christianity from other views of things and other religions, um, other philosophies, it's centered in how we understand the incarnation and its consequences. Um, so that's probably a good Starting that's a place. that's a really interesting point. Uh, the incarnation is what distinguishes Christianity from other philosophies and and faiths, and um, that really uh, gets me gets me thinking because <laughs> there's why is that exactly? Well, I think the way Christianity understands the incarnation in particular, and the way it illumines its distinct understanding of what is most real mm -hmm. um, is really that which distinguishes it. I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. There are other philosophies that you have stories of gods that take on relationships with creation, um, become incarnate, if you will, or have some kind of temporal ways of interacting with things. Uh, but they usually are meant to be metaphors or they are meant to be ways of personifying certain kinds of ideas. Um, or there may be kind of mythical stories in, in the kind of bad sense of the word, mm -hmm. right? That they, they, they're ways of dressing up a story to make sense of the world that really they didn't have enough information or the right kind of categories to make sense of. Mm -hmm. And so they, they told them in those kinds of ways, stories. Um, Christianity's a bit different than that. And while it will recognize that there is an echo in all of that, um, that, that kind of creation 
reverberates maybe is a good mm-hmm. way of putting on it um that that there is something there that people are responding to but that's not the full story and so what christianity is telling us is that the creator and source of all things and i'll unpack that a little bit more for for the listeners mm-hmm. um who not merely is the biggest thing around or the top of the chain of being but the very source of being itself, the very source and end of all things, if you will, the most perfect reality that is, that is the source of all things, um, has not only created all things, has not only sustained all things, um, but is the very source of those things. And those things are different than the creator Mm -hmm. in the sense that they're derivative, they're created. They depend on God for everything that they are and what they are, right? And so this is a very unique understanding of the God-nature relationship, if you will. And because of that, in the Christian understanding, creation is not in competition with the creator. It is actually its own reality that has its being in utter dependence upon and out of the sheer plenitude and love of the creator wanting it to be. Mm-hmm. And so the creator's relationship to creation is not one of tension originally. It's harmonious and that God as the source can fully interact with the creation and the creation doesn't have to, if you will, kind of take a step back in, a, in order to allow God to act. Rather, the creation acting is just the very thing that the creator supplies it with, the capacity to act Mm. and enact itself. And so why is this important? Well, when creation turns its back on the creator, wants to go its own way, if you will, wants to be its own source, or turns to the creation instead of the creator as that which is going to supply it with its its goods, if you will, um, that creates the problem that, the incarnation is meant to address. That is where a competition, if you will, begins to develop between a will that has turned its back on the source and therefore a will that has abandoned life and now has entered the shadow of death and therefore a creator who does not want to leave the creation in that state of death and its consequences. Mm. So this creator is fully capable of entering into that creation in a way that, without crushing it, is able actually to indwell it, subvert it, overcome the flaw we brought into it and its consequences, and then bring us, by faith in him, back up into a union with him and life with him. And the incarnation, in a sense, is the way in which God does that for us. And he he didn't have to do that, though. That's right. Like, I was reading Athanasius this week, and Athanasius points out that the Creator probably could have done many different things, but not if he wanted to save his creation. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. He could have, I, I forget some of the examples, like maybe just judged us or maybe made a display or... But if he wanted to actually save us, 
rescue us. He had to be very specific and, like you pointed out, had to enter in to the creation as one of us while remaining uh, himself. Yes, I have, exa I have a, yeah, exactly. a quote from Athanasius that uh, that stirs me. Mm -hmm. um, he says, uh, "Now then, if they ask why, then did he not did he not appear by means of other uh, and nobler parts of creation, and some uh, and use some nobler instruments such as the sun, the moon, the stars, the fire, the air, instead of man merely." Let them know that the Lord came not to make a display, but to heal and teach those who are suffering. Hmm. For the way the one uh, aiming at a display would be just to appear and to dazzle the beholders. But for the one seeking to heal and teach, uh, teach the way is not simply to just a sojourn here, but to give himself to the aid of those who in want and to appear as they who need him uh, can, and can bear it. So he he didn't he didn't come just to make to dazzle us to make a that's make a display but but to heal and to save us. And that's that's going to be a very important point and let's keep a, a little check on that because I want to okay. come back to that with some fullness. I I really think there is a that when you start to unpack the story of Christmas told in the scripture, you begin to see the contrast between power of display versus Okay power that that basically um is so powerful that it doesn't have to come in royal display the way earthly powers in their fallenness display okay. themselves um so that that's going to be a, a huge uh point point to come back to but one of the things i think worth noting especially for those who you know don't have familiarity with what chris why why the incarnation um it, and you hit on it there it, it, the creation needed to be healed and oftentimes we the best metaphors we have for healing tend to be medical right if we we have a body that is diseased um we somehow will turn to medicine and science to help find a way to fix mm -hmm. that to understand what went wrong and fix it well we have a a nature that is diseased and in this case this disease is not merely physical um, it goes all the way down to us being image bearers of God. And again, as we're oriented to God originally the right way, um, we have, if you will, the capacity to commune with our creator in fullness. And in that communion, mm -hmm. we, we are communicated that very life in fuller and fuller ways. And we are, you know, partakers of the life that God is. Cutting off that flow is to bring forth the opposite of life, death. And with that death, cutting off the flow, um, comes a whole lot of other things. Um, diseases, uh, the physical diseases, all the ramifications, the restlessness, the anxiety. Um, but, but basically the disharmony of creation, the disharmony of relationships, hatred, bigotry, racism. I mean, those are just a few, you know, broken marriages, broken families, uh, political power oppressing people. All these are consequences of selves that have moved away from the reception of the goods of God by being oriented to him the right way, and instead turning to the creator, turning inward, and then unleashing death, if you will. And so in order for God to 
basically, you know, overcome that. Um, it isn't going to ju- and, and in a way, and this is where, where uh, Athanasius is exactly right, in a way that he's not starting a new creation, but he's actually going to renew the creation that he originally given, the, you know, the fitting, and I, I use the language fitting um, probably because it still bespeaks the way in which God's absolute freedom to enter into the creation and resolve it is still held in place, and yet the profundity of why he becomes man is is uh, still accented. So the most fitting way to actually save human beings and heal them was to become one of them, and from the riches that belong to God's nature to unite them with a broken, fallen human humanity, uh, you know, Christ assuming human flesh, mm-hmm. our human flesh, um, in, in its broken state, even though he was without sin, and basically flipping it all around. Him taking upon himself all the death, hell, and brokenness and giving us the divine riches, you know, mm-hmm. eternal life and the communications of all those things that are good. And this sheerly out of God's love. God doesn't need it. God doesn't need to save the creation. Didn't need to create to begin with. Was not set, you know, sent into a frenzy when humanity rebelled, right? <laughs> but but actually, um, you know, knew from the start, if you will, um, what what the salve would be. Mm. His very life lived and in you know among us. Now there's an important key here. Human beings are image bearers of God. This is where the human being actually in some ways is the most significant of the creatures and because they are the ones who bear God's stamp in a unique way. Now, all creatures bear God's stamp in some way as creatures. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a hierarchy. I mean, Genesis tells us that. And you could argue that the whole reason why the temptation in the garden, if you will, is the attempt of, you know, Lucifer, if you will, the angel, original angel of light, you know, the glorious one that uh, fell in his own pride, um, is envious of the fact that there's another creature that uh, is more glorious than, than he, and mm. the whole aim is to bring, bring that mm. to destruction, Right. And uh, and so there is a battle going on as well, spiritual, and you see, you can s- still see the ramifications all around us. Uh, what what is the war we're confronting right now? But the eradication of our the significance of our own bodies as part mm-hmm. of our being in the image of God. So we're at war with our own connectedness to our bodies, and here comes one who takes the human body, redignifies it, even in its brokenness. And then, in the end, resurrection, and says it's made for eternal yeah. relation to God. Yeah, is it is this is this an analogy? We have uh, um, some neighbors across the street from us, and this house was it needed some significant repair, and <laughs> all the contractors have been going in and out of this house for a few months now. And at one point, I said to my <laughs> I said to my family, I said, they could have just built a whole new house, <laughs> like like way quicker. And yeah. we talked with a guy who is uh, rehabbing it, 
and he talked about the black mold everywhere and how they just all the work that they had to do and and like that's that's a lot harder <laughs> that's a lot more work but yet you there was some kind of value to this house that they yeah. wanted to preserve and keep keep it without destroying it and rather than just create something again which i mean arguably it would have been easier yeah they um they went in and I don't know. It seems like there's an analogy there. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's the, you know, the the creation is created out of the love of the creator <laughs> and out of the will of the creator. And it bears all of the perfections of the creator, even though they've gone awry. Um, those are goods. Those have value because of what they are the images of. And so even in all of their broken and distortedness, mm -hmm. that doesn't take away their, their, the fact that they've been willed by God out of, yeah. out of love. And so because of that, God's, you know, God doesn't see it to merely just throw it away, but mm -hmm. create the conditions for the possibility of, if you will, or the actuality of um, a, a people to be redeemed and to be partakers anew of God's mercy in profounder ways. And, you know, and I think the whole notion that, you know, this whole notion that God can be united to a particular human being, the second person of the very Godhead with divine and human nature fully, is such a profound mystery anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but then to think that God comes in tabernacles and lives among us and, you know, and associates with us and... um comes alongside us and mm. then ultimately sacrifices himself for us and dies in our place. I mean, you can't get more profound than that. Mm. And then when you unpack what it means and the healing tied to it, you know, I think it was, was Athanasius who likewise said, you know, um, what hasn't been, you know, assumed has not been redeemed, right? So if he didn't truly come and take on humanity, mm -hmm. humanity has not been redeemed. But likewise, God becomes human so that humans can partake of God again, right? I'm just and, really feeling, like in your words, the dignity and, uh, and again, the love that God is um, showing us uh, because he... He loves our bodies. He loves how he made us. He yeah. loves our physicality. It's mm -hmm. worth, it has his marks as a maker and it's worth something to him. Yeah. And then he came in, uh, as, as you said, he lived among us. Like he yeah. didn't just come in like a big fat Zeus and, <laughs> yeah. you know, do his miracle all at once, whatever he's going to do. But he started off in the lowest place. Uh, as a baby and then grew up, you know, slowly uh, being with us for 30 years before he even, you know, did anything recorded in scripture. Yeah. Just that love of coming alongside and making sure that he was like us in every way, except for sin, of course. I just feel the, I just feel the love of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes we, we often and rightfully emphasize our own part in this is rebels and, mm -hmm. and wicked, right? Um, is those who have been given everything and yet turn to 
the lesser riches as though they're going to give us something more than God. I mean, the ultimate offense and, and arrogance in that, right? We're mimicking now, you know, our quote unquote father, the devil, um, right? That, you know, caught up in our own radiance, um, thinking somehow that that is a, as a, as a sufficient replacement for what we were, we are as, you know, heirs of, of God. And, um, and so that emphasis, of course, on judgment and, and wrath, I mean, we, we talk about those, but those things, too, you can't lose the sight of, are because of how much value and, and, and weight God has placed upon and love God's placed upon the creation. And because it is a real partaking of the perfection of God and is called to that high place of glory, that the turning away from it has such huge ramifications um and you know it's it's kind of like working kind of at a nuclear plant you know here's a here's a bad analogy but a nuclear plant for which the warning signs are everywhere that if you do this bad things mm -hmm. are going to happen right and the bad things are going to happen because of the gravity of what can be unleashed if you don't put that lever down at the right time right mm -hmm. Um, but in this case, it's, it's also attached to a kind of the, the moral and spiritual, where it's even more profound. So, but I, but but the flip side is is the creation is gift all the way down, and God is still holding and sustaining a creation that has rebelled against Him at its center, the human image bear, and yet. A love that transcends all of that in such a way that he becomes one who enters into uh, union with with humanity through taking on a full human nature and uh, living that life. And Should we unpack that part now? Uh, like, what yeah. did what was his nature? Was he? Because I know throughout church history, there's there's been different ways that people have. Uh, understood this and then gotten it wrong, and uh, uh, then so the hum he, Jesus had a human nature and divine nature. So was it like half and half? Did yeah, he have yeah. two separate people inside of him? Yeah. Um, was it convoluted in some way? <laughs> like, yeah. Well, uh, that bad, bad blood can be uh, <laughs> much blood can be spilled yeah. over those, <laughs> and yeah. have been again yeah, because of the gravity. Um, that's right. Getting the doctrine right, and and I think the earlier church had a, a better seriousness of it than I think we tend to. We're, we're mm. you know we're relativists whether we like it or not, and so the hair theological hair splitting of earlier days doesn't make a lot of sense to us, other than okay, you know that one sounds better than that one, but it's okay. I'm not going to you know go punch such and such mm -hmm. over that issue. Saint right? Saint Nicholas, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> It, 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 by the way, here here is a little a little uh, <laughs> a, a humor offtake, but I will yeah. come back back to that that point. Um, you know about the the gravity of it. Yeah. Um, my son, who is now fifteen, when he was little, I used to take him to this YMCA summer day camp, and uh, one day I was picking him up. He was he was, had to be four or five, and the counselor came out. He said, "Look, I need to tell you something." Uh, your son, he uh, he kind of launched across the table and decked the guy in the face, and I had to kind of separate him, and we just wanted you to know, talk to him. And so I get him in the car, and I said, well, what 
what did he say? And he he said, Dad, he said he didn't believe in God. <laughs> and after knowing church history, I couldn't scold him, but so, <laughs> so hard. So anyway, there's my, my uh, St. Nicholas. And eventually you signed him <laughs> up for boxing. That's right. He is in boxing now. That's, That's right. right. That's to help him, him control it a little. Yeah. Um, but uh, so back to the point. So, so the way that Christians, um, orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy understands uh, the scripture, which I believe to be the, the sound and true way, is that Jesus is, Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. Um, hmm. Fully man is that he has, is every way like us, except without sin. Um, and fully God is, he is in every way like God of true God, light of true light, as much as the Father is God. And um, again, Scripture hints all over the place and gives you cues to this, um, but it isn't always on the surface and clear for everyone who reads it. You'll hear language of, on the one hand, you know, you'll see something that, okay, he sounds pretty much like God, right? In the beginning is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, but then you can read stuff, well, firstborn of all creation. You know, I mean, what in the world is that? Does that mean he's the first of all creatures? And so when, you know, especially as we're removed from the biblical world itself and their conversations, um, we have to kind of read it from, from a, lot of, a lot of time away from the original conversations, we can't necessarily pick up on the cues, um, but the cues are there. I think one one way in which the church fundamentally knew we're dealing with fully God with Jesus Christ is the fact that he's, he's included in the divine name. You don't include a creature in the divine name. That's blasphemy. Mm. Um, actually, the Pharisees understood it, right? Because when Jesus associates himself with the divine name, they... <laughs> they accuse mm. him of blasphemy. Um, and then I think that, that more than anything else starts to become the fact that uh, the name of God and the self-naming of God is identified with him, recognizes it. But of course, when you start to understand his mission and then the mission of the Holy Spirit, you begin to, to understand it as well. Um, and the full humanity is what we have in the in the Christmas story, you know. Um, and you have a lot more going on there, but you definitely have this one is born of a woman, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, flesh, f flesh and and blood given from Mary. And something uh, from the uh, I think it's in Nic the Nicene Confession stood out to me uh, as I was uh, getting ready for this, and that's that Jesus had a reasonable soul. Yeah. And like that's one of the one of the 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 details, the hair splitting details, yeah. which actually is, is pretty big that yeah. and, and that refers to his full humanity. Like that's even right. his soul was reasonably just like a human soul. Because I think there's this idea I I mean I know it as I hear it over and over again that people think, well, he just had the body, yeah. but his his spirit was God's spirit. Or his yeah. soul was God's soul. Yeah. And that's not the case. That's he had a reasonable human soul, too. Yeah, yeah. Soul and body in his humanity. 
Um, I think this is where his uniqueness will distinguish itself in the sense that he doesn't have a human person. He His person is the second person of the mm. Trinity. And so that that's that's the one, you know, if you want to distinguish his humanity, it's like ours in every way, except the person that is united in union with it isn't a, another human person, Jesus of, of Nazareth, but is the second person of mm -hmm. the Trinity incarnate. That's incarnate. the profundity. That's good. Yeah. 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 And so here you have the second per person, divine person with also in, in the confines. Mm -hmm. Right, and that uh, like when people and then and just in another footnote of an area when people accuse God on the cross of doing child abuse, it's like no, you don't. That there's not two people there. There's not like <laughs> a father and a son to abuse. There, there, no, there's right. not two. There's just one person. It's yeah. the second person of the Trinity yeah. incarnate in flesh. So yeah. there, you're not even understanding the question right at, at that point to even say child abuse because there's there's just yeah. There's just one person. Yeah. And plus he, one he being. you know, as it says, he does so willingly and yeah. he does so in order to, to, in lovingly, there's no abuse going on there. Um, that's, you know, this isn't in, in, in the, in the undergoing of it, isn't just some, some, uh, divine, uh, wrathful figure that's just taking it out on the creation because he happens to be more powerful. It's actually mm -hmm. the very creator undergoing what we did. <laughs> wow. The judgment is is what we did. Wow. Um, the judgment he's taking on is is is, is ours. Is, we use the legal language, but it's what we did. It's yeah. not we crucified did. him. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And 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 the judgment itself is the consequence of turn. You know, of what we bring into the picture. Mm -hmm. I always tell people to look at evil mm -hmm. this way. And this is pro it's not easy. I mean, we can often talk about it, I think, in a way of, you know, you have a healthy cell and a disease comes and lives off of the healthy cell. So you have a good creation. Creation as creation's good, right? It's God's giving it being is good. God continuing it in being is good. What we do with the being, with we don't have being of ourselves in the sense that we're causing us to be. We're just receiving the being that God is causing to be. But from that good being, the thing we introduce is the not, if you will, th that which couldn't have being on its own, but lives off of the good being, but is a distortion and a perversion of it. It is a cancer that has entered into the human, and that unleashes with it all kinds of cancers and diseases and everything else, and Christ is coming to take that cancer away. <laughs> and and I think that's, you know, and it isn't something that God just snaps God's fingers and eradicates. That's how real the being is that lives off of the being of him and how made for him it is. So he doesn't just amputate, but somehow right. he gets he gets rid of the he gets rid <laughs> of the cancer. Yeah. And and saves and saves the whole thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. What's a good place in the Gospels uh, to start in order to understand uh, kind of some of the things that uh, you're talking about? Um, well, I think since it's Christmas, we could actually start maybe with with the kind of Christmas stories told in Scripture. There are a few things, and I'm not original in any of this, but there are a <laughs> few things going on. Um, oftentimes we miss just reading them or just listening to them 
especially casually. Um, but I think, you know, enough of us that kind of spend a lot of time thinking about these things and reading about them realize there is a lot going on. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the ways you see, let's take Luke, you know, mm -hmm. where you really get Mary and the Magnificat um, in the way he tells his story. And, and you, you will see, of course, you're dealing with worldly political situations, um, a lot of chaos, a lot of oppression. Uh, but you have it, you know, well, let's put it this way. The way stories are told in the ancient world is from the perspective usually of some hero or some figure or some powerful figure from this worldly terms. And you have mm. what Caesar Augustus, right? Um, and yet you have all of a sudden, you know, this thing is thrown into that picture at which the change of focus moves from Caesar Augustus, the one most of the stories would have been told by, mm -hmm. to all of a sudden this humble lady, this insignificant one by power standards. And yet this handmaiden of the Lord becomes the very one on which the very second person of the Godhead is going to be united to the humanity that is going to be birthed in her womb. So in that sense, she is the God-bearer, right? Mm -hmm. Theotokos. Yeah. Yeah. And what is her, her response? It's so contrasting the pride yeah. and arrogance of, you know, the Caesar Augustus of the world, right? Um, it's my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord and his spirit, you know, and my spirit exalts mm -hmm. in God, my savior, for he has done great things for me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and she has this little prophetic note that us Protestants tend to miss. And my name will forever be called blessed, <laughs> right? Mm. <laughs> right? She will be lifted up, not because of any greatness that is from her power, mm. but because she has become the vehicle of the Lord's power, right? Wow. And majesty. She has become the place at which the king arrives, the entrance through which the king arrives in his creation. Um, and so then, then what do you get? Well, you have the, you know, well, you have the contrasting of, you know, power by the make the, the you know, the Caesar making decrees and, and telling people I'm in charge. I control things. I'm going to do a census. You need to conform. Now you need to go register yourself so I can basically dominate more. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, sound familiar. <laughs> right. Yeah taxes and census and, and everything else. And then you have the story in Luke and, and the other gospels start to fill in is that here is a baby being born out of his own town, out of his own house, you know, in a manger. Mm. Um, and and all these little details that we miss that they are basically showing the way in which the power that God is is so powerful that not only does it have the capacity to become a creature and enter in, you know, the earth, spring from the earth as in the inside, as the, you know, the, the Old Testament puts it, uh, but is able to overcome all of that worldly power through this one who resists the temptation to be like Caesar Augustus, right? Wow. And so Jesus, in in a sense, there. This is where you're, you know, you're kind of Philippians, 
Philippians mm-hmm. comes in, where he takes on the form of a servant a creature. Um, and not only a servant of the Most High, right, ordering us back to God the right way so that the life of God can flow, but also a, a one who submits to that fallen worldly power. Think of that. You know? Think of that. But in his being, in, in his, his doing that, he actually is the one flipping it. Right? Just like he flips death, hell, and the grave, he's flipping the power as well. But he's doing it in a way that is because he is so omnipotent that it looks like weakness. It looks like, oh my gosh, a baby. But that story is mm-hmm. being told that way in that time, and it is completely undermining the very power vision of the fallen world, right? You'll see it later when they say, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you? Pilate, yeah, and John yeah, 19. And Christ is like, you, you would have, have no power, you have any power unless my you. father gives it to yeah. you in heaven. But that, you know, yeah. but so be it, right? Let it let it go through. Why? Because in his weakness, the, he, he, he is, this is what, this is one of those profundities of the way in which God's power works. Now, before I get off that theme, note the way in which today we talk of empowerment, right? Mm-hmm. People even in the church now embracing that language, right? Um, the church has oppressed us and kept us back from our true selves. It's, you know, locked itself onto a contingent ideological view of the patriarchy, and it's trying to just stifle us or our sexual expression or or our identity. And so the church is just running along with the empowerment gospel, right? The liberation from oppressive um, power structures so that people can self-determine themselves. But if you pay careful attention to those Enlightenment views, they are not so very far removed from Caesar Augustus' view of power, right? The power to basically control my life and control things the way I want them to be, and that anything that hinders that um, is something basically that needs to be uh, stifled, shut down, marginalized, you know, excised. And so even in the church, we have to be very careful with the language of empowerment and, and liberty and freedom, that we're not importing a whole different notion of it. Um, whereas notice the incarnation, Christ's absolute freedom is not used for him to come on the scene and parade and bedazzle, right? As, as <laughs> Athanasius said it, but it is actually to come alongside the broken, the hurt, the ones who need healing, the ones who really have no power. At the end of the day, none of us really do, not even Caesar Augustus, Right and comes alongside us and enjoins in our weakness, and yet, again, becomes the very source of, of a resurrected life that we now can partake of as the first fruits of eternity. But right there is, is all the, you know, you get the full flesh incarnation with the way it tells the story of Jesus being born, entering into a world, but not entering into it as you would tell the story of someone you wanted to exalt as if it was just a hero or a fabricated figure. No, this is one who grows up 
works, you know, lives um, in his community, goes to a synagogue, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, is shown going to his, basically his bar mitzvah or whatever, going to get, you know, going to uh, prepare for it. All of those things are right there in scripture. And so as, you know, in scripture will often say as the custom of his day, you know, he went along with things um, the way anybody else would. Um, so you're really noting the humility in all of it, the lowliness, yeah. the weakness, and that's uh, apparent in Mary's response when uh, God says that you're going to bear my son, basically. And she's like, how can, how can this be? I'm still yeah. a virgin. And he yeah. gives her some kind of an explanation about the Holy Spirit overshadowing you and all that. And her response is is simply what our response should be. It's so humble uh and it it's oh it's what does she say let it be to me according to your word yeah just yeah. i'm submitting myself let yeah. it be to me according to word it's one of the the most beautiful lines of of anyone uh in scripture and that's that we had a a, a listener um um ask or pose a question where he noted just the kind of dynamics that you're pointing out and he was wondering about them more and um his his um question was he says mm -hmm. there's multiple passage passages in the bible that connect the themes of incarnation mm -hmm. with service mm -hmm. and with glory and you noted one of them like philippians 2 and then mark 10 that's the passage where um uh, James and John, I believe, are arguing about who gets to sit at the right hand in yeah. heaven about about glory, basically. And then Jesus says in Mark ten forty five, the Son of Man didn't come to to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mm -hmm. And then also uh, in John thirteen, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. So, um, so, so I guess, yeah, noting those connections about service, about uh, glory, and then about power. That's, that's an interesting combination of things. Yeah. I mean, there, that's a, a lot of that is the, the kind of consequences and unfolding of the way in which the one who is power itself comes in the fragility of a baby and comes alongside us and doesn't take on his true position as king of kings and lord of mm -hmm. lords in the way in which the caesar augustus and the and the, mm -hmm. those crying for empowerment but actually comes and uses that freedom to come alongside the creation that is broken and out of self-giving love um willing to basically take on to himself the suffering of the world and bring the riches of heaven in to be given to a broken world for its for the first fruits of its healing, um, and so in a sense, what you have is okay. Let, let's put it a different way. Jesus, as the Son of the Living God, has no need to come here and be glorified by by us. The fact that we glorify God is not for him. Mm. Of course, he, the name, his name is to be glorified, and he glorifies his own name. But he's glorious in and of himself. He doesn't need human praise to feel great or exalted, 
right? The glorifying of God is simply because it's the partaking of what God is by nature, the glorious one whose name is the highest, highest thing of glory there is, right? And so it's allowing us to share in it. So when he's bringing heaven's glory down so that we can share in it again, he's got to bring it down into the depths. He has to bring it past the world's false glory into into our lives in a way that they aren't equated, right? Think of think of the Roman Empire, right? I mean, the Roman Empire was such that it didn't have a city of God, right? It's the city city of man. And as the city of man, um, the only, the, well, the highest value in that city is for man to basically be a good citizen and be glorious by this worldly standards. In other words, to live for the glory of Rome and therefore for myself somehow to be glorious for Rome. I mean, that was that was kind of their... Mm-hmm their aim and so self-glory um mm-hmm. but usually at least aim towards you know what they held in highest value the you know rome um was was what they were after and so fame in the sense of my name lasting generation to generation that's about as far as it could get um for the roman i mean that's what you live for um, in a sense, your happiness is bound up with everything this worldly and what you can get in terms of glory within it. And so a little bit further down the line from the gospel stories, a couple hundred years later, Augustine has to confront that question. And he says, well, look, if that is all you have, there's one thing that you are unable to address, and that's the fact that we're all going to suffer and die. And so you recognize that, you try to have glory, but the fact is you're not going to have any kind of glory that is is going to undo the fact that you're going to suffer and die, nor undo suffering that could happen to you at any moment. And so all these things and this worldly happiness you're looking for are a bubble that bursts, you know? Um, they're short-lived, and you know it. <laughs> so there's a this is this is really something. So there's like uh, there's like a missing ingredient out there that yeah. humans that we need. Yeah. It's like being deprived of of water our whole lives, and yeah. if that if that were possible, and, but then suddenly someone's uh, saying, "No, this is water, and you need it, and you'll feel yeah. a lot better, and yeah. you'll live if you have this." Yeah. So there's something called there's God's glory. Yeah. that we've been cut off from yeah. that we need. So you're saying that it's when we talk about like in the Westminster to to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's not yeah. it's not anything he needs. That's right. But but we need it. Yeah. And he's uh making a way for us to come back to be enfolded back into his glory so that we can drink of his glory yeah. and be nourished by it back to health, back to spiritual, physical well-being in every way. Um, we, we need the glory <laughs> and yeah. the way for us to get it is for, well, all, all that I said, but he chooses very humbly to come in because that's, that's also part of the picture, yeah. um, that it's not this Caesar like glory that's so right. so that we don't confuse them. That's right. And so like, like even Augustine in his first parts of the cities of God, when he's contrasting this worldly glory of you know worldly power and you know and being recognized mm-hmm. 
versus divine is fundamentally caught right up in the difference between pride and humility. Mm-hmm. And the reason is tied to the incarnation, because humility in the Christian sense of the word is actually a partaking of divine omnipotence, which can completely subvert and overcome the limited, distorted, broken, this worldly power. Wow. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, that's what you have yeah. going going on. So the servant form, in a, in, yeah. a, in a sense, is very subversive of worldly yeah. power in the sense that it's, you know, C.S. Lewis said, it's, it's sneaking behind the gates of enemy lines, right, yeah. in humility. It's, it's not simply using a rhetorical trick, though. Humility mm. really is that which depends on the power of God rather than the power wow. of this world and its wow. fallenness. And the church is, this is where the church has been tempted at times, especially when it's had access to worldly mm-hmm. power is it would draw itself into that in a way that it tended to to wield the sword the wrong mm-hmm. way um and uh and didn't 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 always use it um with humility so like in these in like these three passages that i mentioned john 13 mark 10 and um philippians 2 just real quickly I, i'm just summarizing <laughs> it for, for myself now uh <laughs> So there's this, there's some kind of a, a power grab or controversy over glory or promotion in each of these, and it's a, as if Jesus is like, okay, let me show you again how this works, <laughs> how reality yeah. actually works. And so yeah. he takes off his his robe and he bends down and he washes their yeah. feet. Or these two women who in Philippians are arguing, he's like, okay, let me show you again. Uh, Jesus didn't, Paul says that Jesus didn't grasp on, uh, his glory as God, but he made himself nothing becoming a servant and so forth. So that's, that's the pattern then. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a couple things there. Of course, there is the way in which he is the, the faithful Adam who is ordering himself to the father as creator the right way, right? So there is that going on, yeah. which which is going to take under the conditions of the fall, humility, because pride is what exalted our sinfulness in its state to begin with, and that's what brought about the conditions of perverse power. Mm. So humility yeah, is going yeah. to be a, a countering of that. So there is that element, but yeah. there is also... His power is made manifest in weakness. In other words, okay. the, the the analogy to divine power in the world under the conditions of brokenness in the fall is not going to be human power like Caesar Augustus. It's going to be like Christ. Yeah. Yeah. So the church is called the body of Christ. And yeah. we've been talking about, you know, the yeah. body of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. How and in what sense can the church today mm-hmm. um, think of the incarnation, think of itself as being the, mm-hmm. could, can we say that we're like an incarnate body of Christ? Mm-hmm. Um, is there a, a connection there that, or a metaphor there that we can use that would be helpful for the church today? Okay, yeah, very good question. And again, I, I imagine anyone who's out in different ecclesial territory than my own, and I, I can yeah. be differ from even within the reform camp. I'm in a kind of the Ang- Anglican world. So, so, but let, let me put, I think something we can, you know, we would all agree on is that, you know, scripture calls the church the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so what does it mean by that? Um, well, there are a few things I think we'll all agree on, that it is the consequence of our being brought by faith into union with him, right? Um, and, you know, now some of us will understand sacramentally a, a deeper connection that, you know, the tangible way in which those sacraments become mediums of grace um, and become our kind of birth into this body, both in, in a physical way, but, you know, also a mystical way. Mm -hmm. um, but probably a good, a couple of ways of unpacking that so that we can at least keep to a lot of the, the biblical qualifications. So, of course, Christ's human body, the particular man that he is as Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, which is the Redeemer, is resurrected and sitting at the right hand of the Father, right? Eternally um, one um, incarnate, resurrected, living Lord. Um, now, one set of images from Scripture is that we are the bride of Christ. And so, just like in Scripture, as the head and the bride are united, they become one flesh, flesh of my flesh, bones of my bones, right? Bought with, you know, the covenant, which is life or death, right? And out of his life comes an everlasting covenant we're united to. And so, as such, there is all of the oneness that uh, marital union in, in, um, would have with it. Um, that you're distinguishable, but you're not autonomous. <laughs> um, and Christ has united himself to this people forever. So there is no separating of ourselves from, from him on the ontological, on the level of reality. And Paul um, says in Ephesians five that Christ, husbands care, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and and how how husbands care for their yeah. wives as their own bodies, as and their that, own. Yeah, and so Christ caring for us as His own body. Own body. That's wow. right. That's that's right. And so, and then another set of images though is adopted children, right? So as creatures, we're all the offspring of God in the sense that we all spring from or sustained by the Creator. But adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God is an intensification and what, what we were destined for prior to the fall, right? Um, made to be a people of God, where God, you know, a temple of God where God dwells, if you will, a living temple. Mm -hmm. um, and so as God's children um, and adopted, we are not merely just, it's not just merely legal, there are legal dimensions to it, but, and it's not just all imputed, but it is, in, it is partaking of, in other words, mm -hmm. the, all the benefits that Christ is communicate themselves to us as his sons and daughters, where we too can even call the Heavenly Father, Abba Father, right? Mm -hmm. When Jesus told us the Lord's Prayer, he's inviting in us into being heirs alongside him as real sons mm -hmm. and daughters, right? And he, when he tells us that we too can pray our Father, He's inviting us into his relationship mm -hmm. to the Father. Mm -hmm. He's now saying that 
And what does he tell us? Now that you are my sons and daughters, and as you are being renewed, your disposition is going to be the same as mine, where the first thing you're praying for no longer is, God, I need this, 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 and this. Mm -hmm. It's our Father is who is in heaven. Hallowed be mm. your name, right? Not letting God's name af fall upon the idols becomes mm. our first cause. Um, let me just un unpack that for just a second, using your own words, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. That when we call upon God as Father, we're not calling upon God as the biggest and best Father in the room. That's right. That's right. right. He's not yeah. just a, a, the greatest Father. Yeah. But we're calling. We're calling on him as, as you said, as real children, because we are partakers of yeah. the divine nature. Like we're, we're changed too. Like we yeah. have his nature yeah. through union with Christ in us. So, so, so it's different than just getting a better daddy, right? That's right. That's right. We are, we, yeah, we are being transformed. I mean, the older, the older church would talk about theosis or deification, mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the kind of, as we've moved from that language and don't know how to qualify it, we use glorification, right? right? But, but and again, there there are nuances in, in the way East and West tell these things. But we're still after something about what we're the communicative, the the communicable aspects of God that can be shared with the creature. Um, think of James when he talks to the Father. He's the Father, Father from which all. Every good and perfect thing comes. He is eminently the one who every good and perfection exists in as God mm -hmm. and is the source of those things, is the one who communicates those things to the creation. Mm -hmm. But even furthermore, we have riches that just merely being a creature wouldn't be able to have been been able to get a hold of. We have been brought into the mm -hmm. inner sanctum of God's communion if you will, his most intimate personal communion as Father, Son, Spirit. And yeah, we've yeah. been brought into the bliss and joy, the beatitude of that very life. And so those riches are now communicative. I mean, another way of putting it is the peace that Christ is, the Prince yeah. of Peace, yeah. has come into the world, and now we get to partake of that peace, even if it has not fully manifested itself in the restoration mm -hmm. of all things yet. Yeah, and people may ask. They may say, "Well, what are these, you know, treasures that God that God gives us or communicates to us?" Well, Scripture says, like in Galatians, is it five or six, where yeah. we get the fruits of the Spirit He yes. gives to us yeah. out of His divine nature. These are yeah. real things, especially yeah. when you're going through hell in life. Yeah, absolutely. He gives us love, joy, yeah. peace, peace, patience, kindness, yeah. goodness, self control, yeah. all yeah. the rest. Yeah. Like those are real things yeah. that. Uh, anybody who's sensible that's that's listening, who has had highs and lows in life, who's had yeah. the carpet ripped out from under their feet before, would gladly have any of those fruits of the spirit yeah. versus anything else in life, any any material possession, any power, anything else. So those are those are the real things flowing to us from Him. Absolutely, as a I consequence, think, and and I think. You know, oftentimes we don't spend enough time thinking on those those perfect gifts, and, yeah. and, and again, there 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 are additions. You know, there is the the the. I mean, those are aspects of being the first fruits of us already being able to enjoy something of God's in, yeah. God's Here inner communion, yeah. right? 
So God is in eternal communion of sheer joy. We get to partake of that joy in Christ in some way, you know? Yeah. Um, that's why, whether you have the angels, that's this announcement comes with great joy. You know what I mean? Mm. To you, a child has been born, you know, in the city of David, mm-hmm. right? Joy itself has entered into creation, and we get to partake of joy. Peace itself has entered into creation. We get to be born of it, impacted by it, it needs to radiate our life. Mm. Eternal life has entered creation. We get to partake of it. We get mm. to taste it. We get to enact it in our lives and share it with each other. That which reverses sin death hell and the grave has yeah. entered into life and we get to partake of, we get to be the first i mean you could go on and on and yeah, on yeah yeah and those are, a, those are just things here and now that we can get that's right. let alone who knows <laughs> yeah, that's well, why paul and others are probably probably able to say that you know i can't even de- describe to you what's yeah. in store you know yeah. for us at the um at the end of uh wayne grudem's systematic theology on his chapter on the incarnation he summarizes it uh, by this little this little quote. He says, if he were to summarize like um, what the incarnation is, it's re- remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Yeah. I think that, that that's a yeah. good summary. Remaining yeah. what he was, he became what he was not. And in, in my mind, as I'm thinking about this, like that's what you could say, how you could summarize the Christian's life too, as we're being glorified, as we're being united with Christ, yeah. remaining what we are we're we're becoming what we're not that's we're, right we're becoming we're becoming glorified we're taking on that that new nature and all these gifts slopes, that's right. you know slowly so we we are incorporated through christ into his in, into his flesh in its union with the second person of the trinity that's wow. how close we are and so all of the ways in which his resurrected humanity united to his him as the mm-hmm. second person that God had is is in union with his divinity mm-hmm. we become the partakers of and, and so we're we, not we're not getting off of uh incarnation right now we're, no. we're not this is this is all part of the incarnation this is all the consequence part of, the story. Yeah. of of incarnation and what it yeah. means to be wow. the body of Christ and so we get to radiate that in our life together as the people of God. And it is that life together, not just me as an individual Christian, although I am as an individual Christian a partaker of it, but it mm-hmm. makes no sense apart from the body mm-hmm. um, across time and, and, and its particular form of life. I mean, that shape is not arbitrary, right? Um, there is a reason why we do things in his name and pray certain ways, right? He's given us the form that is the shape in which truthful enactment of our creatureliness before him is to be ordered as it continuously is transformed until it is perfected. So we need to wrap things up um, for now. Um, Talk about it. Can you give any like specifics as that church body that you mentioned? And I know you said you're part of the Anglican uh, tradition, Mm -hmm. but are there things that, uh, uh, churches uh, can do to celebrate the incarnation, um, or, or to recognize it, or hmm. to yeah, or, or to mark it, especially, I guess. Yeah. Well, of course, I, I, I'm a big fan of also celebrating this time of year, right? I mean, Advent yeah. and then then Christmas as as a, a day in which we celebrate the incarnation. Um, I believe Christ came 
as the one to fill all things, and he also has taken over as Lord of Time, the very calendar, and our liturgical calendar mm-hmm. is is a way of, of marking that out. Um, and so Christmas is the time we do that. It isn't about, you know, I mean, of course, there there were pagan days where they celebrated their gods, but uh, just like there was fallen, broken flesh and a broken creation, which he came to restore, he comes to restore things to their proper reference, him being the center. Um, so that's one one place, and a good thing if you have any worries, read Saint Augustine's list of Christmas sermons, and you'll be convinced it's about Christ. Mm. Um, um, that's one place, and the profundity of the divine and the human natures. Uh, they're very good, and they're very short. Um, another thing is, I, I think the, I mean, being a part of your church's life um, under word and sacrament. I mean, those are. Im- those are places of hearing and they're partaking of the physical means of grace, which are connected very much to a restored creation, uh, mediating grace. And that is the way in which the word and spirit um, transform us to be to each other and to be a witness in the world of that very life. Um, And so it's through obedience to that form um, given, given, and scripture and sacrament that we enact the servant form, if you will, in the world yeah. with with power that is humble. One more question, mm-hmm. and this is for think of your college students. Okay, speak to uh, students who are going home on break, and maybe their families aren't the healthiest. Maybe yeah. there's brokenness. There's struggles. There's going to be expectations that that aren't met. There's going to be drama. How? What can we say to them for encouragement? I, I, you know, I often I've been reflecting a lot on the the whole issue of brokenness and suffering, mm-hmm. and and I even, uh, you know, I was I was reflecting on the Christmas story in which you know where you you've been told that you know here is the Prince of Peace. Yeah. And, you know, glorify, you know, the angels come and say, glory to God in the heavens, you know, peace on earth and goodwill, you know, of goodwill to men. <laughs> and I thought really hard about that, that in the incarnation, there was anything going on in the Christmas stories that was very peaceful. There was nothing going on very much in the life of Christ right. that was yeah. just tranquility. Um and I often thought about how in the world do they say Prince of Peace has come and, you know, and even that there will be a kind of goodwill developing amongst humans where you see such, you know, so little. Um, so and it's into that that Augustine's talk when the Romans actually charged, you know, Christians with basically blaming them for the fall of the empire. Um, Augustine goes right for the heart of things. He says, really, the fact is... Reality is such that empires can be sacked. The contingent is fragile and it's broken. Families are broken. Relationships are broken. We get disappointed. Now, one of the reasons that happens is we're, we're, even if we're Christians, we're still in a broken set of circumstances that even though ultimately it's been dealt with, it still needs to work itself out in time. Now, the difference between the pagan and the Christian is hope. And the reason we have hope is, one, because we know Christ has overcome death, hell, and the grave and has 
brought about the 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 actuality of the future healing of all things but in the meantime christians can still have hope in ways non-christians can't in that our suffering is something that is bound up with the fact that we still need to be made whole we're in the process of being made whole but even as christians we still latch our loves onto things in this world relationships expectations and we can't help it we place our heart in things we place uh, everything about us in those things the problem is we try to often latch so hard on those things that if they fail to deliver we somehow feel god has failed to deliver and what it, we're being reminded in in all of that is is that it's not god failing to deliver God is increasingly weaning us off of those creaturely things that we've made God and purifying our loves so that we can begin to see and receive the fullness that he alone is incomparatively. And it's a painful, hard process, but he is present in it all. And you can truly know joy as you turn, you turn to, to the message in which we get not just the wisdom of God, um, but you actually get the meaning of all things. I mean, here is the word himself who illumines people in any understanding that they have entering into the scene and supplying meaning in a meaning, otherwise meaningless world. That's great. My guest today has been Dr. Tom Price. Thanks for joining us today for this meaningful conversation on the incarnation. I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. Tom, Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas and, to you and yours and everyone out there in, in the bumper world. <laughs> that's right. Thank you so much for coming on, and, um, and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you.